Welcome back to the Diary of a Sugar Mom. Don't tell the kids. Let's begin where we left off. Chapter 7. I'm with the band. I was 16. I loved music, singing, playing the guitar. I saw an ad in the paper for a vocalist needed. My best friend made a bet that I could grab that job when I felt I couldn't. We shook on it. I went. They asked of my prior experience. I lied, and I got the job. I sang from that moment until I was in my mid-thirties. It's amazing how some passions bloom, as singing offered me the ability to have simulated, or do I mean stimulated, sex on stage. Anyone watching and listening would reach the same peaks as me when I wanted them to. Hot, intense, raw performing, no matter what type of music, I was always able to engage an audience. Sex remains the thread throughout. I started as a wedding band singer and hated having to memorize other people's words. I recognized the fact that I had a lot of words up there in my head that were looking to escape, so I quickly moved up to becoming a jazz singer at a very elite restaurant. In fact, the elevator to get to the restaurant was glass and overlooked the city. At one point, I was dating the leader of the band, who was older than me, very married, but a very sexy guy who was willing to try new things. Ooh, he always told me I had an imaginary T for trouble imprinted on my forehead. Many trips in that slowly moving glass elevator were made with me wearing no panties and him with a loose sliding zipper. It was intoxicating to be singing such intricate music, knowing I was getting laid between sets in a moving setting of glass. For me, it was almost like being inside Cinderella's slipper. I always wondered what it looked like from the outside. Me pressed on glass and him pressed on me. I left his band after a couple of years, feeling the rock and roll tugging at me. I joined up with a band that was a trio that played heavy-duty rock, where I was able to come into my own. It was exhilarating, to say the least. We were together for a short while. It was one of our days off. No practice, no gig. I was at home, and the phone rang. It was a friend of mine, a talent agent in the city. We'd been friends for a while. He knew of my band and was in need to quickly fill the opening spot for the band known as Queen. They were to play the major arena that night in Philly. Their opening act was to have been the Cars, but their bus broke down. My first thought is what I remember to be the most prevalent of all. Oh my God, the Cars were my favorite band. Why couldn't Queen have broken down instead? <laughs> I know the things we think of in emergency situations are sometimes worth holding on to, just for the fun factor. It was 3 p.m. and the show was to start at 7. And I not only had to find my band members, explain the situation to them, I had to figure out what to wear, how in the world to grab roadies, and ride to the arena since my car had just recently broken down. Imagine the time wasted trying to explain to a friend, I need a ride now to the arena because... Oh my gosh, to this day, when I think back to the kinetic energy I used to make it happen without a hitch, I laugh out loud. The guitarist may as well have uttered the words humana humana as I giggled on the phone. Get your ass to the arena! We opened the show to 7,000 people, and I remember looking out 
never seeing that many people in front of me in my lifetime, and hearing someone yelling my name, Dora. Oh my God, Dora! <laughs> I saw my girlfriend in the front row, which just set the tone immediately for me. I threw my head back and laughed out loud, while the guys behind me felt the addiction flowing from the audience through me to them. What a night! No, really, what a night! We got a beautiful write-up in the paper. I've got a beautiful copy of it in a scrapbook that I just recently shared with my kids. That look, the rolling of the eyes look that comes just after you say the words, "Hey kids, come here! I have something I want to show you." The eyes all rolled. They huddled around diligently and saw my picture smiling. All eighteen years old of me, dressed in sparkles, holding a mic stand in the air as I tended to love to do. Wait, mom, is that you? <laughs> I don't think I've ever smiled as genuinely and broadly as I did in that picture again. It was a pure fantasy that came to fruition. My kids actually went on Facebook and told their friends, which was even a bigger coup for me. It mattered. Something about my life was cool in their scope of life. To this day, I'm still smiling. Chapter Eight: The Colonel. Other than sex, music was my life. Creating a melody that could hold my thoughts inside a rhythm that was meant for just one person in the audience and me. I was putting myself out there, susceptible and very sexual on stage. At times, I surprised myself at the many different ways I would use a mic stand to represent a phallic symbol, being held between my legs. Rubbed and stroked, or lifted above my head, causing many men to take photos of me. The first photographer from Penthouse took pictures that were knockouts, sexy, sensual, showing only little bits that would make the imagination wander. But he tried to convince me to go a little further and take all my clothes off for submission. I think back on this and wonder why I refused. He had the proper props, backlighting, wind machine, and a bed, all to be used while I had on skimpy lingerie, peeling one piece off at a time until it was just me, bare and wide open to view. It was certainly within my chemistry by then to do it, and yet I said no. I think I was trying not to embarrass my parents, as they had successfully embarrassed me for years with their constant battle for center stage, one right after the other. It was so much of if he said, then she'd say, then he'd shake his head, and she'd put her nose in the air, and on and on and on. It was anxiety-filled, like fireflies setting off sparks at a repetition of forever. What happened to turnabout's fair play? Even with viewing all of their nonsense as the child in a very apparent role reversal type of situation, why couldn't I hold a grudge? I was more worried about embarrassing my dad because many people knew him in the community due to his occupation. I never seemed to worry about my mom. I think it's because she taught me that being a strong woman meant being self-sufficient. She had a strong armor. By this point in my life, maybe age sixteen. I was so very comfortable with my sexuality that I'd not think twice about taking my clothes off, skinny dipping, having sex outdoors where public eyes could see, wearing no bras, talking trash in bed. In fact, I could easily be with a boy my age or a man twice my age. I loved the effect I had on the opposite sex, intoxicating to me. 
Sex became the comfort zone in me, and my family was the part I so desperately wanted to avoid. Still a half an hour left to go inside this cab. Which one of my lovers do I want to daydream about? Maybe my friend the colonel? What a demanding man, and so self-righteous. He was the first man to utter the words, Nope, I'm too busy for monogamy. As he flew me into his city with the hopes of just having a fun weekend, he had me dress up, dress down, took me shopping for things to put on me, then slithered them off me. There wasn't a piece of furniture in that hotel room that wasn't christened by us in many different positions. I thoroughly enjoyed him. Another wallet, another giggle, and yet another one that bit off more than he could chew. I've changed my mind. I can't handle the fact that you may see other men, he exclaimed. Even though he and I had been perfectly clear from the beginning, he may as well have said, you need to be mine and do as I say. I guess he also may have expected a high salute with an aye aye, sir, uh, captain or colonel, whatever. I tried calling him a day later only to be rebuffed and ignored. It was the first time, actually, that this had happened to me. The high heel was certainly on the other foot. Not sure why, but I miss him. And sadly, if he had done the right thing and really uttered the words, I know I said that, but I've changed my mind. I might have listened. I've been told I have the capabilities of thinking like a man, so for a retired military man to think like a woman and assume I wouldn't listen just confuses me. The man inside my female brain wants to bitch-slap some sense into him with a more powerful slap than a typical woman could muster up. Why would I choose to daydream of him, the one that got away? Maybe because I'm used to getting my way sexually. That one stung, as he just wouldn't talk to me. He shut me right down, and I never knew why. If I can't talk, I feel stifled, and he never even gave me the chance to say a word. Chapter 9. Halfway House is Not a Home A teenager, my house was always filled to the brim with other teens, most of which came to see my mom, not me and not my sister. After living all those years so unhappily with my dad, she needed to fill a void. She decided to go back to school at the age of 50 and get a degree in social work. I wonder where I learned the art of reinvention at a later age. I'm thinking with a chuckle while I sit in the backseat of this cab. Thanks, Mom. She'd practice on neighborhood kids by inviting them in and making them feel as if my home was their home. They'd tell her their problems and she'd solve them. She turned my home into what she called a halfway house. If my home wasn't dysfunctional before, it certainly was now. It worked out for my sister, who was mentally and physically challenged since birth, allowing her to have what she'd never been able to earn on her own, instant friends. Just add your mother's frustration and open door and presto. This formula did not work for me. I never had a day of privacy for the rest of my adolescent life. There were always kids in my living room, kitchen, den never less than 10 at a time, all looking for affirmation, praise, reprimand, and love from substitute parents called mine. My room was in the attic and was my only safe haven. I'd disappear when I could, turn on my stereo, black light, burn incense, and try to pretend that there was no house beneath me. 
Jimmy and Janice were the ones who understood me. His guitar and her voice luring me away from the insanity below. Peeling the onion is a scary thing to do. And yet I continue. I was hiding from something I'd recently seen, something that just about knocked the wind out of me. I should rephrase that and say I caught a glimpse of something that could have been misinterpreted, maybe to the point that I wished it away. I heard my door open at the bottom of the steps while I was in bed listening to Foxy Lady, heard footsteps on the stairs, the squeaky step making me realize whoever was visiting was halfway up and obviously not one of my suitors, or he would have known which step to avoid. I saw the top of his head, blonde hair, blue eyes. It was that boy who asked me out in school a few weeks back. That boy I'd quickly said no to, because I felt something was just off about him. We shared a math teacher, and that was more than enough. I felt my mouth go dry as I tried to spit out the words, What do you want? He was in my bedroom, uninvited, came to my bed, sat down beside me, and said the words I never wanted to hear. Dora, I know you saw us, and I want to explain. Your mom and I, we're in love, and we'd really like to have your blessing on this. This was totally dysfunctional, more so than I'd ever experienced before. He made me sick to my stomach, holding back the vomit that I tasted in the back of my throat. I had seen what I thought I'd seen. I'd passed them in the kitchen, and I'd seen him with his arm around her, and she was looking up at him. But was it sensually? I wasn't sure. Even though I owned what I thought to be the master of sexuality genes, I chose not to see. Now I knew. He was 16 and in high school with me, and she was 49 and had opened her house to these kids. She'd lost control. As far as I knew for the first time, my mom crossed the line of morality. I'd hoped it was the first and last time. All of these thoughts flew through my brain, and I still said to him, Last week, you were coming on to me, and this week, you're doing my mother? He tried explaining in a rational tone that he loved her and that she was the best thing that ever happened to him. I looked him straight in the eye and told him to get out of my room and get out of my life. Later, my mom tried talking to me about it, but I just couldn't hear the words. Dora, I've been unhappy for so long. I don't know what I'm doing, and I know it must look wrong, but I feel something again. Can you understand? She looked like something from another planet to me with a forked tongue that I pictured swimming around in his mouth. What child likes to picture their own parent having sex with even their own other parent, let alone a 49-year-old woman with a boy my age? She was as off as he was. It was one of the few times in my life that I was speechless. I knew that whatever response I'd offer would be the wrong one. So I took the easy road, which at the time was the closest to the right thing to do. It was probably one of the few times in my entire life that I kept quiet. I kept this information to myself for as long as I could and for as long as they stayed together. I found myself never wanting to go home, always finding somewhere else to be. Sometimes we wish we didn't know things figuratively, so our minds might be clear and devoid of anything that might muck us up. 
Other times, like this time, I literally wished I could go back in time and turn right instead of left to avoid seeing what I thought I'd seen—a system restore of my mind. I spent two days dwelling on it, rationalizing it, trying to erase it, but it just didn't work. I finally told my boyfriend, who for years later held on to that tidbit of info, and manipulated me into thinking he was the only sane part of my life and that I shouldn't look back. He continued this brainwashing for the next nine years as he hit me, spit on me, pinned me up against walls, threw me on the floor, demoralized me, all while I allowed it because he said he was sane. My mom, my house, and my dad were not. As sick as I thought she must have been mentally at that time, is as sick as I was allowing my own boyfriend to hit me one more time, putting me in the hospital with a tripedal fracture to my cheek. This time, it required an operation to stop my face from falling apart, let alone my soul. My spirit had packed a bag and left with the three men supposedly desired most, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and caught that last train for the coast. Honestly, for me, I understood Don McLean completely when he said it was the day the music died. A part of me just up and left and decided to never look back until thirty years later, at the age of forty-five. When I was with my own younger man. Chapter ten, and the fling goes on. Eighteen years separated that younger man and me, and while I saw him, I always had that nagging feeling in the back of my mind: Am I my mother's daughter? He was to have been a fling. While four years later, after meeting him on that train, we still fling when we can. Amazingly, I'm close to her age when I met him. These mother-daughter moments can really rock your world, which is a phrase he'd used on me after our second time together. This man offered me hope. Hope is such a dangerous drug, but we're so susceptible to it. It was a time in my life after having been married, having my kids, and then separated that I knew something was missing. He too was in the same position to meet a total stranger on a train that was jam-packed with people, and to start talking to each other openly and honestly about the lack of passion in our individual lives was like taking part in a Fellini movie. We recognized the hunger just by watching each other's mannerisms. All these years later, he's still the one that I dream of while I'm on a plane or think about randomly during the day while stressed. He's still my drug. I overdosed on him at one point while confusing love, lust, maturity, and sexuality. I may as well have just put them all in a giant martini shaker, shook it, and bottomed the glass. It was the same for him, but he had more control than me. Married with young kids, he'd say to me, "I leave you. I get to my house, put the key in the lock, and don't know how to leave you on the doorstep." He began to pull away because I was interfering in his head, not able to separate the us from the them. I used to say to him, "I'm older than you. I've been through the lack of passion for so many more years than you. Please understand that by being with me, it'll make your marriage stronger." He'd look at me like I was crazy. The thing is, I meant it. 
if you have the need to be with someone extracurricularly. And no, I'm not saying it's right. No, not at all. But these things do happen more often than not. If you find yourself between a him and a her, sometimes there's just no going back. It's misdirection, where the bullseye was placed there after you threw the dart, and you're just enjoying life. Finally, how can it help my marriage? He'd ask. I tried to explain. It can take the pressure off of your spouse sexually, where you've been demanding it and hurt due to the lack of it in your marriage. You can now rest assured that at least you're being proactive and taking care of yourself. Less pressure on her. It can work. Damn it! It's logical. Chapter Eleven: Three's Company. His age showed through after three years. Whether it was his immaturity or his being more mature than me, I don't know. I only know he couldn't handle it. I'd call, he'd pull away. I'd ask, he'd ignore. I'd been desperate for years, starving for affection, attention, a kiss. So much, my mother's daughter. He was my total fix, and it hurt so badly to lose him. It cut very deeply, down to the core of my soul. The cab driver's getting rambunctious. Maybe he's been watching the movie playing in my head, on my face. I let him watch. Four years later, my young lover knows I'm leaving. He's known for six months, yet he calls over and over, like he's trying to fix the mistake that he made. He says, "We'll never be able to see each other if you move." I say, "We don't see each other anyway." Amazingly, he seems to have forgotten that he pleads with me not to go, and that he'd make time for me. I stare at the cab driver defiantly in the mirror, almost as if I'm telling my ex-lover through the driver, "It's just too late." Unlike my mom's lover, who was what she felt to be the equivalent of a lifeline, my young lover was my fix, not a repair. Are moms ever right in the eyes of a daughter? As a teen trying to find ways out of the house, I remember reading a want ad in the local paper and finding another band looking for a lead singer. I sent a tape, and they accepted me. And the next thing I knew, I was on the road to Miami, leaving home for the first time in my life. My bug was packed with whatever mattered to me most, so tightly packed that I need not worry about things shifting during a turn. I was eighteen. I was alone. The leftovers, the spit out after my parents' nasty divorce, pretty much numb, but with room for recovery. It was a perfect excuse to leave my ongoing dysfunctional existence and travel to meet up with this new band at the age of eighteen, having never met the band members in person. I was in for a rude awakening when I found out how chauvinistic they were. I was sneered at, avoided. Made to feel inferior, and yet a necessity to the road trip because I was the promised and much anticipated lead singer. Attraction was a part of my being, and many people would come up to me to talk after each gig just to find out more about me. I always wound up asking more about them. I believe my attraction was the main source of disconnect with this group of men that called themselves musicians. It was the first and only time I ever joined a male band without doing my due diligence. Maybe I'd been in too much of a hurry to leave home. I'm just not sure. We played our first gig in a bar, all pop music, nothing original, 
which already left a bad taste in my mouth since they had advertised themselves as being mostly original. But at that point, after driving that distance, I wasn't looking to make any more waves than the one I had planned in my head when I'd waved that quick goodbye. We hit the road. I wasn't happy. And after many days of this mundane existence, I was approached by a photographer once again asking me to participate in a photo shoot for NASCAR. I decided this might be just what I needed to feel better about myself. This time, I had no reason for inhibition, no parents' reputation to protect, just mine. I was told this was a high-fashion, NASCAR-sponsored session. Nothing could be further than the truth. I arrived on the set, which was an outdoor racetrack, with a small house or shed in the center of the track. They gave me a race car driver's suit with a NASCAR insignia the same one five other male models dressed in. I got into the jumpsuit, zipped it up, as did the other men, and sitting on a set design that was made to look like a bedroom, I was offered a drink. The next thing I knew, I was laying in the bed, having the jumpsuit unzipped and pulled down, actually tugged off of me by these male models. Not quite the photo shoot I'd expected, and not being able to offer resistance due to whatever they'd slipped in my drink, I decided to just lay back and go for the ride. I was drugged. Being in a semi-coherent state, I remember thinking, I should be scared. But what was more scary to me was that it was enjoyable. Every man was touching, licking, or playing with some part of me. They had my legs spread and my hands held down, and I could hear them talking, moaning, encouraging each other, and whispering things to me like, You like this, don't you, bitch? I saw cameras shooting while they shifted me to different positions while opening my mouth and roughly putting themselves inside of me. Although in an altered state, I still knew to be terrified of what could be the repercussions of this huge mistake. When they were finished with me, meaning each of them had taken their turn and had played with me as they liked, they left me there. I woke up hours later not knowing where I was. My purse was gone, but I called a cab and got myself home. I never saw any of these men again, and truth be told, I still worry about those photographs, even today. I don't look that different, aside from normal aging, and might be recognized, which is very unsettling. As a result of this day in my life, which offered a feeling of degradation, I taught my own daughters early on to never, ever leave their drink exposed in any circumstance, not even at a friend's house. What I knew I would never tell them was I secretly did enjoy it. Drug-induced or not, I've never told anyone this story, ever. As a result of this, I put singing on hold for a while. Chapter 12, The Odd Job Leaving the band and not even offering a wave, I pulled into a store in Miami Beach, parked, came back out, and found a note under my windshield. If you're looking for a job, call me. Just another oddity, but... I called. He said he'd noticed my car was full, saw I was from out of state, and had watched me go into the store thinking I might need a job. He asked if I had ever waitressed, and without missing a beat, I replied, yes. 
even though I'd never served in my life. While I think back, there's a pattern here too. I tend to say yes and learn things I really don't know in a hurry so not to miss an opportunity. Swish! I took the name he offered, looking determined and feeling the same as I punched the numbers into a payphone. A man answered and directed me to his restaurant. He not only hired me, but he owned apartments right behind the restaurant and had one available. Instant job and home. No sex. I always waited for that other shoe to drop, but it never did. I met my best friend that night while learning on the job. She spotted my lack of waitressing knowledge, as only a seasoned waitress might be able to do. She immediately dragged me into the ladies' room, opened a stall door, pulled me in, lifted her skirt, and pulled out a vial of Coke. I'll never forget her words. Here, as she handed me the vial. You obviously have no clue as to what you're doing, so you might as well be high. She stuck her pinky fingernail in the little vial, scooped out the Coke, and held it under my nose. I inhaled not only the drug, but the fact that I'd found her and loved her immediately. Strong women are so enticing to me, so intoxicating, that it's almost like looking in a mirror when I look in their eyes. Giggling, she wiped off my nose and said, Follow me, I'll show you what to do. From that point on, we were thick as thieves, bouncing through many men and lots of drugs together. In fact, I had my first threesome with her. We had a mutual boyfriend. Neither one of us had ever slept with him. He was just a hangout buddy of ours. The three of us melted down into one at the end of one of our alcohol-induced restaurant shifts. Lucky for us, we had a bartender that really liked us at work. Shots of Grand Manier were a given throughout the night. We went back to my place, where he fell into the bed laughing, with not even a hint of sex in the air, until we laid down on each side of him. The air was charged, sparking with electricity that we'd never seen before. There was always a sexual tension, but he was more of an object between us as we reached across him to touch each other. She leaned over, as did I, and we kissed each other. I'd never kissed a woman before, and noticed even in my drug-induced, alcoholic state that she was softer than a man with her lips, her tongue, and her look. I got up as he laid still and walked to the other side of the bed. We took our clothes off and began to touch each other. I remember thinking, will there be repercussions in the morning with this? Ooh, but they dissipated like vapor. We were licking, sucking, tasting. She stopped me. Funny thing is, I would have continued without regret. What's even funnier is our friend slept through the whole thing. In the morning, we told him what he had missed. He was beyond furious with himself. It had been his dream to see two women together, especially us. And we felt compelled to slightly lie, telling him he'd missed even more than he had. I left Miami soon after and found myself back with my abusive boyfriend who for some reason had this imaginary rope tied around my neck. I moved in with him and tried my damnedest to see the good. Battered wife syndrome? We stayed together, then moved to Philly where I was to give up my musical aspirations and become the perfect dusting and blowjob type of girlfriend. Domestic in me? 
are just not within the same world. I tried. I cleaned. I took care of the apartment while he went to work with his family-invested opportunity. And at night, I took him in my mouth when he got home. And I slowly started to fade into an ordinary background of grays and browns. Two colors you'd never, ever catch me wearing. When did I become as mundane as colorless color? Next on the Diary of a Sugar Mom, Dora's Contemplating. Why did I marry him in the first place? How did I get myself stuck in this rut? And watch me get myself out and save my kids. Next Thursday, March 9th, it's Robin Marshall, Sugar Mom. Westwood One Podcast Production.